This episode was brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Dave, Greg, Dan, Ian Urza, Kevin, Ashley, Blake, Joel, Brian, Amy, Ian West, and Trey. Stick around for an extended shout-out at the end. Now on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty sidekick. Jackson the Son, and welcome to a discussion about the movie that ran so Hellfest could walk. (laughs) Oh, nice. So... We are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discuss. And after several special episodes, we are back talking about a movie. And today we turn to the 40th anniversary of the late, great Toby Hooper's The Funhouse. Something is alive in The Funhouse. Something not alive like its father. Something better dead. Something that has the form of a human, but not the face. This better be good. It's gonna be great. Something that feeds off the flesh and blood of young innocents. Come on, here we go. This is it. Something that tonight will turn the funhouse into a carnival of terror. So the funhouse was filmed in Dade County, Florida. So to do this right, we need to call in a true Florida man returning to the podcast, the Gill Man, Joel Robinson. How are you, Joel? I am great. I am honored to be here. And it's funny when you asked me to do the fun house, I thought, great, that's cool. I'd love to cover it. And like, it didn't even occur to me until I started rewatching. I'm like, oh, that's right. This was shot in Florida. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, now it makes sense. Totally yes. get asked me to do it. Yes. Florida does not have those pesky child labor laws that California has. Yeah, of course, no, they're totally ridiculous. And we prefer to uh, uh, just have, if we had coal mines, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, Ron Swanson, Parks and Rec said, you know, child labor laws are ruining this country. So anyway, um, the the IMDb synopsis for the Funhouse reads, four teenagers visit a local carnival for a night of innocent amusement. They soon discover, however, that there is nothing innocent or amusing there at all. Uh, Maybe. Yeah, no. (laughs) Let me just say why no. First off, for a a, a night of innocent amusement, they go there smoking weed in their car. I don't want to give anything away just yet. But they do that, and then obviously they're checking out strip shows and everything. So they they, they weren't looking for music. And to say there's nothing amusing there? Oh, no. If nothing else, to see that the carnival barkers all look like the same guy. Yeah, or that. (laughs) Which, uh, you know, may may imply some kind of inbreeding there. But anyway, uh, Joel, when did you first see the Funhouse? I have to be honest. I think when I first saw this was back in, and I can tell you, I can tell you at least when the episode was recorded, (laughs) Uh, October 9th, 2013, this would have been, yeah, this would have been uh, an early spooky flicks fest. I'm guessing or right thereabouts, uh, like maybe the second one we did Um, or third, maybe it's the third one. And Dave, Dr. Shock Becker was on with us and we covered the fun house. It was me and uh, uh, Jason Grooms. It was Forgotten Flicks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it was not uh, Retro Movie Geek yet. And yeah, we covered the fun house. And I do not think I had seen it before that. I wow. think I think I'd see clip. I knew I'd seen clips of it. I remember the Fangoria cover right. uh, with, the, with the main monster on it. And so I was always aware of it, but I just never watched it. So that would have been my first time. Wow. So Jackson, what about you? Uh, the first time I watched The Fun House was in late 2019. I want to say September of 2019. And this was uh, during the time when I was watching two, sometimes three movies a day, which was, you know, no small feat considering I was going to school for eight hours a day. Um, so I would I would come home from school, watch a movie, then do my homework. <laughs> and afterwards, I would start another movie, go to bed, finish that movie the morning after, uh, then go to school at seven o'clock in the morning in time for my zero period class. Now, 
Needless to say, this is not the, the, the ideal way to watch movies. Uh, but as far as, as I was concerned back then, just, you know, like putting the movie on in front of my eyes before logging in on Letterboxd counted as like academic enrichment. So I kept on keeping on with this for a few months until one day I only watched one movie a day and then another day I didn't feel like watching any movies at all. And whoops, you know, there goes that. But um, anyways, watching The Fun House this time around in one sitting, uh, with it being the only movie I watched today so far. I don't know. Maybe I'll change my mind. But I don't know. It was awesome. I, I really enjoyed it much more so than I did my first time. Um, and another thing that enriched my viewing experience was knowing some of the behind-the-scenes proceedings, which I'm I'm sure we'll get into, um, because it's, it's a Toby Hooper movie. So, like, what, what happens on set, off camera is often just as, um, <laughs> depending on the movie, if not more interesting than the movie itself. Yes. Yeah, so I first saw this on VHS somewhere around 84 or so. I remember liking the poster, uh, and that was about the time at our local video store, a wonderful um, sucker, I mean wonderful person, who worked at that video store would let me rent anything I wanted to. No, folks, they didn't have a section behind a curtain at my local video store, <laughs> but you get the idea. Um, R-rated stuff I could I could rent. So the plot is typical. Um, four teens decide to stay after hours. Um, they oversee a mutant paying for intimate services of a <laughs> carnival worker played by Sylvia Miles. She of that, uh, dulcet tones a la Fran Drescher, Gilbert Gottfried, Carol Channing. <laughs> and, uh, he, um, well, things finish before they begin, but, uh, Sylvia doesn't do refunds. So he kills her. They witness it. The mutant, by the way, uh, and this is not an un-PC old-school-fashioned mongoloid. This is something out of Jabba's pal palacine, right? So one of the teens, Richie, I believe, steals the cash, and the mutant's father, I guess, um, Conrad, one of the carnival barkers, discovers they're being watched, and they've been ripped off, and boom, it is on. So, Joe, what did you think of the plot-slash-screenplay for The Funhouse? Um, I liked it, and you know, it's funny— I'm a lot like Jackson in this way, even even though I feel like as as these kind of movies go, um, I saw this much later in life, right? I feel like this is a movie I would have seen much younger, but I liked it a lot more for some reason, seeing it this go round, mm -hmm. and 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 I actually got in uh, two viewings. I got the, I watched it, you know, without any commentary or anything, and then I did the commentary. Oh, nice! And uh, I agree with you, Jackson, that. This movie, once you especially know a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, it does, uh, I don't know, accentuate it. But as as a story, it's very basic. But I love that what Hooper did was is took sort of like, this is the era, you know, 81 prime slasher. Oh, yeah. Right? And he intentionally, in the first five minutes of this movie, he homages not only Halloween, but Psycho. And... Then, so he sets up this expectation, like, oh, here we go, another great 80s, early 80s slasher flick. But then, no, it turns into this kind of almost universal-inspired monster movie-type vibe. Mm -hmm. um, it always still maintains that sense of the, the era, right? You got the, the small group of teenagers they go into the environment they're going in places they shouldn't go the the sort of the virginal final girl character uh, uh, which i'm sure we'll obviously get into the cast but oh play, yeah the, the, the wonderful elizabeth barrage and yeah it, it just the, as a story it's pretty basic right i mean i think the first time i saw it i was only put off in that if and it's not from like a prude perspective <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but 
the whole plot twist with the fortune teller and just the way it plays out. I remember at that time being like, ew, and what is happening? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, you don't expect it. But then I think once you know what you're getting into, it's, I don't know, it's a, re- and it's a wonderfully shot movie, which I definitely want to get into the yes. uh, cinematography. Absolutely, we will. So, Jackson, what about you? What do you think of the plot and the screenplay? Uh, I think the screenplay is is pretty good. It's it's uh, very serviceable. But um, I know that the screenplay was actually adapted into a novel by Dean Koontz. Yep. Um, I've never read a Dean Koontz book. I have uh, one of his books, Mr. Murder. I just opened it mm-hmm. up, and it smells uh, really, really musty. Um, but, uh, anyways, I don't know. I think that'd be interesting to read. Just like, if you can't see the fantastic cinematography and the spectacle of the actual fun house itself and the monster design, um, which I think Botine actually did, right? Wasn't he involved in this? Rick Baker. Oh, Baker. Okay. Um, I, if you can't see that stuff, I wonder what's left. You know what I mean? Like, like how effective is it actually? Um, but yeah, I had, I had no complaints. It is very typical. As he said, um, it is, it does kind of feel like an old haunted house movie. It's like yeah. they're, they're walking around corners. They don't know what's going to be their next. There's, there's that, that like bag lady who kind of feels like w- one of the butlers from, uh, uh, house on haunted hill, which we talked with, uh, Dr. Shock about just right. that, that kind of crazy old hag stereotype, which, um, Joe Bob seems to love so much, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's solid. It's not the film's strongest suit, the, the screenplay, but, um, it's definitely not the most questionable aspect of it. Although I guess Larry Block did write that scene in. So, um, I don't know, but Matt, I mean, what's her name? Madam Zena. She really got the yep. short end of the stick in this movie. <laughs> I was going to say no pun intended. Um, oh boy. Anyway. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh, sorry about that folks. Anyway, um, I, you know what, I think it's looking at that year 81, because 81, 82, I mean, Joel, you're right. This was the heyday, right? I mean, this is 81, 82, you get Hell Knight, you get the Prowler, you get Curtains, you get, you know, Madman, you get on and on and on and on, My Bloody Valentine. And I kind of like the, as you brought up, the Universal Monster feel, Jackson, what you brought up, the Haunted House feel. I think it is, pun intended, a little bit of a cut above at least some of the second tier slashers like madman or even well pieces is just bonkers but you know i I think it's a little bit above that i like some of the touches there's some things i have a problem with according to joe bob bricks they were kind of rewriting the script on set like the little brother kind of wandering around does he do much no No, he doesn't that's what i wrote down it's like you probably could have cut him out completely but then the movie would have only been like 70 minutes long without him so and honestly that was as i recall my original watching of this that was the other thing that i just i found any part with that kid in it other than his bedroom because i loved his bedroom at the beginning i was like ah yeah. the bedroom i had as a kid although probably less universal monsters and more contemporary horror at the time but still the same idea the same theme and i love that but the kid himself annoyed me a lot the first oh, time yeah. For some reason, this time though, I guess I saw it for I, I saw it for the subplot for why they used it. It was a way to you know kind of relieve tension to go back and forth, and and also to have a character that I guess in theory is sort of seeking out the main uh, protagonist. Uh, but that being said, and I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, how that kid ends up and where he ends up, and that scenario is one of the creepier moments in this movie. If mm-hmm. it, it may be alone in that <laughs> sentiment, but just. Mm-hmm. You know, ending up in the in the Carney's wagon, um, being cleaned up by and just the way that 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 interact that whole interaction with the parents is, uh, it just I don't it added a level of creepiness to the whole movie that I don't even know if it was intended, but uh, I, I I took it uh, a certain way. So, 
Yeah, yeah, I like that scene. But other than that, there's a lot of scenes with him just walking. Yes. Just walking. <laughs> you got that one jump scare with the, what was it, German Shepherd or something like that. But mm-hmm. other than that, it's just, yeah, it's, it kind of felt a little wasted. And, and, and I'm kind of leaning with what you said, Jackson. Maybe it was just padding, you know, right. to kind of push it out. But... All right, I, I, I still think it was it was serviceable, but let's talk about the cast. And okie dokie, Elizabeth Barrage as Amy Harper. Um, she goes from the funhouse to Amadeus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she did some TV, including the John Larroquette show, which I remember liking in the 90s. Um, but she's a fine actress, but she has always looked really young. Yes, yes. And she's nude in this. Um, she also did some nudity in Amadeus that was cut from the, the from the final uh, feature, you know, run. But so here's I always wonder, I thought, how old is she? And I think she just must be a baby face. She must be like 24, 25. No, she was born in on May 2nd, 1962. So she would have been 18 and, you know, in 1980. But um Here's the in 19 when it came out. However, according to AFI, filming for the Funhouse began in March of 1980. Mm. Anyone wish oh, to do the math on that one? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just hope they shot the the first scene in the movie last. Yeah, I would hope. I wonder how that's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Like, I and of course the laws of the time may have been different. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But- I want, I'm curious, like, okay, you filmed that, but it wasn't actively released until she was, and that's interesting. I mean, I would presume just the filming of somebody at a certain age would be, hey, you're the lawyer, Matt. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, but I've never practiced in Florida, so I have no idea what's going on down here. So. <laughs> Think about that. It was Florida. Never mind. Forget everything I just said. <laughs> well, we talked about something similar, how it's like uh, kind of uncomfortable that they felt the need to do that. Like this, this young girl character, they're like shower scene. We talked about this with the stepfather, right? Where it's kind of like the same thing. It feels kind of unnecessary. I was like, oh, OK, well, that shot was a little lower than it might have needed to be. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it does feel kind of weird. She does look very young. And let's like I said, let's just hope that the filming got delayed a little bit. And that was the last thing they shot like three months after production began. Yeah, it's it, there does feel like there's this gratuity to it. And the stepfather's a great example because I know no no secret, right? And my my top tier horror movies of all time, but I I do agree that it feels odd. You know what it feels like? And and you know not not throwing trying to throw any Hollywood producers under the bus here because God knows mm-hmm. none of them would act this way. But you could almost imagine the scenario where they're like, well, we got to get more butts in seats, right? We, we got you know, what just look if if they're willing to do it just uh you know just show a little bit more skin and like you especially in that time period in the 80s there was this quote unquote logic that because they were up against TV and there was more competition for and I get right. that but I feel like it, it, there was this attitude that said oh you know more nudity obviously more graphic violence sold more tickets in their mind and so that's what they would push and so even when it didn't seem to fit because if you think about it this movie all things considered is fairly tame, you know, by, I think by certainly oh, by yeah. the horror standards of the, of the era. And it's like, it does feel oddly sort of forced. Like it feels almost shoehorned in rather than, cause you could easily had the frame up like an inch and a half. You know what I mean? You didn't, you know. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, I, I understand that hope that Hooper's doing, you know, like a, a psycho homage, but it's even creepier that it's the brother. Like if it had been the boyfriend who snuck in and did it, that would be one thing. But the little brother? Yeah, that was weird. 
I mean, I had sisters. Did did you have sisters, Joel? Yes. Yes, and it's it's weird. <laughs> yeah, you would never do that. That's just. Yeah, oh. it kind of reminds me of Rob Zombie's Halloween with that sequence in the beginning uh, when Michael comes in with the the yep. Michael Myers mask on. It's like, OK, Rob, what's what are we doing? What are we doing here? You, you Do you call your sister often? What's going on? See, it's funny. I, I said that through that whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what a, what a huge Rob Zombie fan you are, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So but uh, getting beyond all that, what do we think of Elizabeth Barrett's performance? Joel, go for it. Fantastic. I, I seriously, I feel like the way, you know, especially by the end, you know, when, when she just has that that look um, and, and I don't know, I just think that her performance, she captures this innocence without it. It, it never feels forced. That part of it is because she looks as young as she is. Yep. Uh, and I think a lot of the other cast, if I'm not mistaken, were older in some in some cases significantly. I think was it at least yep. one person 30. Yep. Yep. <laughs> So, yeah, so, I mean, by contrast, that helped, but there was just something about the way, because, I mean, I feel like, you know, back to the screenplay issue, some of the dialogue, it's very, you know, by the book, there's nothing special about it, so it would have been very easy for her to have this sort of flat performance, but there's just always something going on in her eyes that's yes. interesting. I agree, and I, I read a review when I was doing some research on this that said that she was wasted in the third act, I thought, no, not at all. I think, I know she's screaming a lot, you know, she's Faye Rang and all that kind of stuff, but I agree with the look on her face. She sold it. Yes. Her terror, especially in that final scene. Oh man. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Jackson, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed her performance of the week quite a bit. Um, she definitely gives off Jamie Lee vibes, and I don't think I'm alone in, in thinking that. Um, but she is a little bit more, I wouldn't say innocent, like this isn't innocent fun, like the synopsis said. Yeah. Um, but she does, you know, after her dad reminds her about the, the people that went missing at the carnival, she does actually suggest to her date, what's you know, let's actually go to the movies. Of course, he's the one that's pressuring her into going to the carnival. So she is a little bit more sympathetic, less risk-taking than the the uh, the rest of the group. Um, but uh, yeah, she she is a she's a, she. I think she is. I, I'm honestly agreeing with the review that says she's a little bit wasted in the third act. I would have preferred if she was a little bit more handy. I mean, what can you really do against that guy, really? But. Um, she does seem a little bit like when she, she does give a little bit of a Shelly Duvall, like swinging the bat when she's swinging the crowbar where she just kind of thrusts it out in front of her face. Mm -hmm. I feel like she, she could have been a little bit more ingenuitive. Then again, she's, she's, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. She was in a place that she didn't recognize. She just saw all of her friends killed. She's going to be in a hysterical state, but, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, think, don't know. I, I think some people are just that way. I mean, and not just, you know, not, this isn't a sexist thing. I think some men and women are just that way i mean you know my wife you know we have this puppy and this this puppy has already learned he doesn't bite me mm -hmm. um <laughs> but he bites her all the time and like he'll like latch on to her finger and i tell her i said you have to be firm use a real firm voice snap your fingers whatever she's like stop i'm like no <laughs> firm. she's like stop i'm like do you know what a firm voice is and no she doesn't i mean i just think some people are that way yeah and i think it also it just comes down to basic fight or flight and i think i've always sure. the sentiment that says people love to say oh if i was in that situation this is what i would do you don't know what you do because because no. people who think 
like, they, oh, I'd be a total coward. I'd run in the corner. They're, they're the ones that, oddly enough, will suddenly step up. It's like their their lizard brain takes over and they grab a stick and they're <laughs> smacking away. And then somebody else who you know is all like, oh, bravado and just bragging, they are the ones that you know go into full coward mode. So you really can't predict until you're in the situation. Right. right, and I, I and I, I, it is it is consistent with her character, right? I mean, she she is more timid than Liz, who's her her friend, and we see mm-hmm. Liz actually proactively, you know, she stabs a monster in the back, so she's she's a little bit more proactive, I would say, than um, than Amy is. But I don't know. I was just kind of expecting her to grow a little bit, but it seems like she's just as cautious and not sure of herself at the end of the movie as she is at the beginning, which maybe is more realistic. I'm not sure, but it, it definitely doesn't follow the traditional story structure in the same way most movies would. Yeah. And, but I just think she's very, very talented. Um, and I, I'm kind of shocked she didn't do more yeah. because, yeah. you know, yeah, she does this. Um, and, and I know she did a lot of theater according to her background, but, and then she does Amadeus, which like sweeps, like, three of the five or six top categories of the Oscars in 84. And she's wonderful in it. And then after that, she's just like, she gets the occasional TV role, you know, all kind of stuff. And she basically semi-retires in the early aughts. And that really shocks me. I just think she's an underused talent. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I remember the first time, I think that was one of the things that uh, Jason and Dave and I had all talked about was that we were surprised that she just wasn't in more. Cause I mean, I think she did Hidalgo in the early two thousands yeah. and you know, <laughs> TV shows, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's surprisingly uh, sparse and I don't, I honestly, you know, you never know why I'm always, that's one of those sort of odd fascinations I have, and especially where say if it, she had been one of those uh, actresses who just disappears after like this movie, <laughs> I mean, the, or, or after Amadeus, like, you know, they had this big moment and then they're just gone. And, uh, and it's not because they passed away or anything. They just decided, yep, yeah, yeah, enough of this business. Cause you just don't know. You don't know what they went through. You don't know right. what, you know, behind the scenes experiences were like. And, uh, but yeah, I, I've always, I've always felt like I would have loved to have seen her and to, to this day. Cause I mean, she's still around. So yep. and it looks like her last credit was to 2015, at least yep. according to IMDB. So love to see her in more stuff. I would, too. I would, too. Which brings us to Kevin Conway as the carnival barkers and uh, father of Gunter. Now, he's been quite a bit of stuff, including all the different um, Civil War movies that uh, follow the success of Ken Burns' documentary in the 90s. Um, And so, you know, but by the way, okay, if he is, his character is uh, Gunter, the, the, the killer's father... Who was his mother? Uh, a gator? Joel? <laughs> Actually, we also have a lot of feral hogs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mammal, let's be realistic here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love his, by the way, I love the uh, the barker that he does outside of the, uh, like the sideshow freak show with the animal yep. thing. Yeah, It's alive, alive, alive. And, and I don't have time to get into it but i would love to discuss you know because they shot this in florida because we do have a reputation for having a relatively large amount of i think circus folk and 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 carnivals and things that are based out of this area and then go off into other parts of the country or at least they that's where they go in like the winter right is they just go to florida yes and uh and so that was i think it actually um was it the new kids with Lori laughlin which i was a sean love that movie that was also shot 
in Florida and has that similar sort of roadside attraction. I mean, that's, I remember, you know, I was born in the mid seventies. So, but I remember being a little kid and, and you'd see roadside attractions when you'd go places. And, and so uh, I, I don't want to derail us from Kevin Conway, but if we have time to come back to it, I, I did want to oh, specifically. Yeah mention uh, a couple of uh like fa- fairs that i went to very similar to this one in florida oh wow and you brought up the new kids and who knew you know the first time i saw the new kids i think back in the 80s that between james spader and Lori laughlin Lori laughlin would be the one in jail yeah who um, but- <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. oh but uh yeah we'll come back and talk about that but uh, jackson what did you think of kevin conway i thought he was fantastic um you know, as as he said, he plays three roles. They're kind of all the same role, but there are little tweaks between the the three of them, little makeup changes and little inflections in the voice. I like that. And as you touched on earlier, um, that kind of gives credence to the idea that all the carnies in this you know particular carnival are kind of related somehow, um, because he does he does uh, when um, Gunter murders Madame Zena, he says our kind. So you could take that right. one of two ways. But um, yeah, I I think he's fantastic. He he feels very theatrical, right? That southern drawl, but then the power he has when he's screaming. Even though he's he from New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he can, he's convincing. I you know I've lived in very southern cultural places. So so of you, you're currently living in a very uh, culturally southern place, Dad. But um, was that a it, shot? <laughs> yes, it, it was. That was exactly what it was. Well, okay, I don't know. Okay, you, okay, okay. I may be in Southern Ohio, but right now you're in Dayton, Ohio. Let's not I act in, all uppity. And be okay. more Southern than both of you put together. This is true. true. Yes. Well, I have seen four wheelers on the highway, so I mean, I, I think that's just about as Southern as you can get. But um, yeah, he's great. I, I, I like him a lot. He is really, in my mind. Um, well, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say who the real antagonist of the story is. I mean, Gunter is a physical threat, but you know, you get the sense he's the one who eggs him on. Yes. He's, right. You get, you get, you get the sense that he wouldn't be the same way he is now without his dad. So, um, yeah, definitely an interesting dynamic those two have. And you do get, there is a sense of compassion between them, right? Like it's a weird love hate relationship, um, you get the sense that, that, uh, Kevin Conway is kind of abusing Gunter, but also he cares for him and, and he, 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 they share some emotional moments, which is really odd that we cut away from the peril of our main teens to an emotional scene, like with these two sharing their, their deepest, well, I guess it's mostly just Kevin Conway sharing, but him sharing his, his deepest thoughts and, and, uh, and desires with his son, which is kind of sweet. And then you remember that they've possibly killed a troop of girl scouts i think that's hinted at later yes. on so yeah it's, it's not it's an interesting dynamic yeah and and i did want to bring up that and i think they mentioned it in the commentary but it was something that i had made in my notes earlier that there i feel like there's at least echoes of chainsaw massacre like if you think oh, yeah. of that as the cook and the monster as leatherface because mm-hmm. he's like He's like, it's like Leatherface. It's like this big sort of, you know, a a man child that doesn't know how to have any social interaction and has been manipulated by the, the, I wouldn't call, you know, the cook that all, you know, together and, and adult. I guess no. have to an authority figure in that family, but it's, it's like this dysfunctional family and. It has a lot of those dynamics at play. So I feel like in this scenario, much like a Universal Monster movie, the monster is actually, I mean, while grotesque <laughs> and disturbing, mm-hmm. it's a very sympathetic sort of creature. Like you get the vibe that, you know, because when he's, when he's when he's wearing the mask over 
his hideous visage, right. he's not, he's very calm. Like he's not like when he's out there helping, he's working, he's walking around people. It's not like he's just on a rampage. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to note that, you know, would he have been this way? I mean, I would lean towards yes, but would he have been this yeah. way if it hadn't been for the influence of his father, who really is the evil one? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And yeah, yeah, there are parallels there. And um, yeah, Toby Hooper's an interesting guy. And we'll talk about him in a minute. I really like Kevin Conway. And I remember when I rewatched this, I've seen this probably three or four times, but I hadn't seen it in a couple years. And so when I, I, I have the, uh, I think it's the Shout Factory, you know, uh, release of the Funhouse. And when I was getting ready to rewatch it, I was looking over it and I was, you know, kind of cruising through MDBuzz. The credits were starting to roll. And so I see Kevin Conway say, well, you know, he did a lot of theater. And of course, in my mind, oh, they shot this and no disrespect, Joel, they shot this in Florida. So I guess by theater, he walked out the, the Burt Reynolds dinner theater, you know, and auditioned for this. But no, the guy won a Tony Award. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy is serious. I oh, mean, he was a, a legit Broadway actor. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got I mean, if you really go through his credits, he was in quite a few really, really good films, too. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I, I, I think he is probably a very underrated character actor because he's not someone that you hear a lot about. And right. honestly, if it wasn't for this movie, now when I go back through his his uh, IMDb, I you know I recognize I've seen oh, I've just seen this one, I've seen this one, but I don't really necessarily remember him as much from a lot right. of the stuff. Whereas from this, he, you know, he really did make an impression. And I mean, not you know, doesn't hurt that he played three parts. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I and remember in, him from Gods and Gods and Generals because he's uh, Jeff Daniels' right hand man in Gods and oh. Generals. But yeah, go ahead, Jackson. It was interesting to me. I was digging through his his actual theatrical credits, um, and uh, it seems like he appeared in a stage version of The Elephant Man, which is oh, wow. interesting uh, to consider when we discuss the antagonist of the Funhouse or Gunter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of an interesting parallel there with facial deformity. I mean, obviously, The Elephant Man is not the <laughs> Gunter from this movie, but yeah. I thought that was that was an interesting thing, thing to consider. But yeah, very prolific. Um, and, uh, it seems like he really got into this movie because if, um, Toby Hooper's to be believed, and I, I do believe him, uh, he was the one that suggested he played those three roles. He wanted right. to be more involved with the film's production. Um, so I, I like it when somebody who's got like a really great talent, they, they accept the script and then they, they want to make it better. They want to elevate it. They want to be involved in it because they're passionate about it. Um, so that, that's always a nice surprise to learn that kind of thing. And, and by all accounts, he seems like he was a nice guy. He passed away, um, mm-hmm. pretty recently, but a very extensive career. I mean, he appeared in Star Trek TNG. So, yeah. I mean, I guess everybody's appeared in Star Trek TNG. It's like, yeah. it's like a, like a CSI crime show or whatever. Everybody's Law been in an episode. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, not everybody plays the Klingon. That's pretty cool. True enough. And I will say an important uh, side note that I, I noticed you left off Jackson is he also appeared in Lawnmower Man 2. Beyond oh, <laughs> yes, uh, the, uh, everybody's favorite film of all time. Oh, I'm sure he put that on his reel. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I saw Lawn Mower One in theater. So anyway, um, the supporting cast, as we've mentioned, Sylvia Miles, uh, well-known uh, Midnight Cowboy, Wall Street, uh, and of course, the classic Critical Condition with uh, Richard Pryor and Bob Saget. Uh, she was also in Violet Midnight, which is an underrated uh, 60s horror film. Um, she was only in, the, you know, that one scene. But what did you think of uh, Sylvia Miles, Joel? Uh, I liked her a lot. And, of course, you also had the scene where she does the um, actual oh, the palm, palm, palm or whatever, where they keep laughing at her. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, right. And- 
Hey, she shows a, a, a shocking amount of patience. If I if I'll give her credit, because you know it was really obnoxious. You know, you're you're trying to do your craft, and you've got these obnoxious teenagers over in the corner snickering at you. Right. But but yeah, and I thought it was effective. I think she helped set up just the sort of that side of that world. And I mean, a lot of it's obviously kind of stereotypical about like the fortune teller, and she's doing the accent and. But when she loses, when she breaks character, when she really gets angry at them, and I know this is a clean podcast, so I won't repeat what she says, but you know, the way she says it, and like that's in fact, I think of the commentary, Toby Hooper, uh, it says, Yeah, and there's the like, that's the real Sylvia, (laughs) (laughs) and this the the edge to it, so yeah, that and the interaction, uh, with the creature, uh, which I think her takeaway from that scene, according to Hooper, was that after she wiped her hand on the sheet, I'll just say, uh, she mm-hmm. commented to him, I did, I just ruin my career. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I just ruined my career. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I, I really, I thought she, for, for the little bit that she's in the movie, you know, she's obviously integral to what happens for the rest of the movie. Uh, I, I really thought she was effective. What about you, Jackson? Yeah, I liked her performance. I think my favorite part she was involved in was the the hint that maybe there is a little bit more to her and her powers. I mean, are they suggesting that she's actually telekinetic when the ball rolls towards her? Or is that just another one of her tricks, that maybe the floor is slanted in her direction? I would um, say that, a trick, but yeah. Yeah, but, uh, and of course that, was, that scene was preceded, or maybe... I don't know what the order was with uh, the magician and the stake through the heart thing. So maybe that's setting up that these guys have all kinds of tricks to to look convincing. But um, yeah, I, I liked her quite a bit. Um, I thought she was just going to be a one-off character. I totally forgot about uh, how big of a role she plays. Um, or more specifically, how big of a role her body plays. Her dead body <laughs> underneath the sheet. But um yeah, I don't know. She's very c- commanding. You kind of feel bad for the uh, for Gunter until you realize what he's commissioning. You're like, oh, why is she screaming at him? And you're like, oh, well, okay. Well. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, she does a good job. Yeah, and I just want to, I don't think we have to go too in depth on this before we get to, you know, the rest of the supporting cast. But William Finley pops up as Marco the Magnificent. William mm-hmm. Finley from De Palma's Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise. He was also in Eaten Alive. And a film that I know Joel knows well, Chuck Norris, Silent Rage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good right there. <laughs> oh, so that being said, let's talk about the teens. We've got Cooper Huckabee, who played Buzz, and as Joel mentioned earlier, was 30 at the time. Um, and he would reteam with Kevin Conway for those Civil War movies in the 90s that I mentioned. So <laughs> what do we think of Buzz, Joel? Uh, yeah, I, I like the performance. I mean, for what it is, I mean, he definitely does not. He has he to me, if you ever need to point to that trope of especially 80s horror when they would quote unquote cast teens yeah. that you you could say like they really were casting people that were pushing 30. He embodies that literally. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he does. Yes. He doesn't. He couldn't even pass for like early twenties. I mean, you know, he's just he just doesn't look like it. Um, but uh, he's one of those actors that, other than this, I feel like I've seen him in a lot of other things. Like his face is so familiar. Yet, as I go through his IMDb, I'm like, I don't remember. Like he was in Django Unchained. I was like, really? Okay. And then was he really? I didn't see that. It it says Little Raj Brittle. So I don't know. Like I don't even recognize okay. the name of the character. But I, I'm, so I'm assuming it was a rather small part. 
And it was probably because of this movie and probably because Tarantino's a fan of it. Yes. <laughs> he put him in it. But yeah, I just go. he's been in like a lot of stuff and uh, Space Cowboys and a bunch of other things that I remember seeing. I still remember him in it. So, uh, but yeah, I thought he was effective. Uh, I liked that he was the sort of, you know, like kind of buff hero. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know the the way, he, and he goes out like trying to you know, be really heroic and 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 help and do do those things. But he's, I don't know, he's kind of ineffective. <laughs> he's not, you know. Yeah. I I get that uh, Gunter is you know obviously sort of presumably has some sort of hu- superhuman strength, but it feels like I'm still trying to figure out exactly how Buzz died. I mean, I know he got a little bit of a stick in the gut, but he seemed like he was okay. And like you did, he tries to shoot the gun, and the gun goes click click click. And then I think when we're back with Amy, we hear one bullet. But does that mean Gunter got the gun and shot him? Like I I didn't I still don't understand how Buzz died. But that aside, I thought for what he had to do. Perfectly serviceable. Jackson, what about you, Bob? I would go a step further. I thought he was good. I thought he was good in the movie. Um, at first, I was like, oh, okay, this is, you know, he pulls up, he picks her up, he's like, oh, who's your old man? No, you know, he's like that kind of character. But then they get to the carnival and he's like, he's trying to reach out again. He's trying to be a little bit more symp- sympathetic. Keeps telling the story about the duck on the hot plate. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just something about him. I, I kind of enjoyed his performance. I thought he felt really natural. Now, knowing that he was 30 years old, I mean, <laughs> of course he was natural. He's lived a lot of life. He knows how people talk. <laughs> But uh, he was middle aged for 1980. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, he was middle aged for Hollywood at least. But um, yeah, he he. I thought he did a good job. Uh, he was he was probably. I th- I thought he was a good match. He he uh, stood up to um, Amy's performance. I thought he was he was pretty good. Now again, he doesn't really do anything. <laughs> I mean, he kind of just fails, like like Joel was saying. He is the kind of the uh, he kind of defies your expectations of the hero. You expect him to be this like brawny like Flash Gordon type, but he doesn't really turn out to be that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know how he died. I don't think that Gunter could fit his fingers through the, the like trigger hole in the <laughs> gun, but, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe someday we'll get a, a spinoff story about what happened in the, maybe we need to track down Dean Coots novelization to figure yeah. out what happened. I, uh, I, I'm more with Joel on this. I thought he was serviceable. He didn't really impress me. I just thought he was okay. I, I don't think he was bad, but he didn't really stand out to me. But that brings us to Largo Woodruff as Liz, who would want one day go on to be, quote, woman in car in Jeepers Creepers 2. So <laughs> she's got that Fantastic. going for uh, Joel, what do you think of Liz? All right, so here's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say for, for Largo Woodruff's performance. It, it much like Buzz, it's serviceable up until her final scene. Hold it's almost like she was holding it all in. Yeah. And she gets to that moment in that air shaft. She was amazing. Like yeah. I like seriously, like I feel like she is the most underrated thing in the movie because just from that little moment that she has, because she legit is terrified. Like it it felt really I would argue in that moment, it's the best performance in the movie. Like I thought she was so yeah. good. In her reaction and like, please don't hurt me. Like, like she's trying to do that manipulation thing of like, okay, he want you know, obviously I know he's all into like women. So I'll use that to my advantage to get out of this alive, even though, you know, he's got the drool coming down. He's so gross. It's like, yeah. I, but so she played how she's so repulsed. She's so horrified. She's so terrified, but she just wants to live. And then with, she does the only thing she can do is she does. I, I think Jackson 
you, you mentioned about how you know Amy's uh, ineffectualness <laughs> with, with her uh, her weaponry versus uh, uh, this character Liz. I yeah, I guess I just and it's it's really kind of tragic, right? So she she's doing it. She's trying to distract him. She stabs him, and because of the positioning and how tight the confines are, she doesn't stand a chance, right? No. Yeah, I just thought it was really good. I, I up until that point, she's fine. It's like okay, yeah, just another character that's you know there, and she's not. It's not horrible acting. It's not great acting. It's fine. But I don't feel like she's truly somebody didn't have anything to do other than just be the best friend. But then that final moment, I thought was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, Jackson. What about you? Yeah, I, I enjoyed her her performance as well, especially in that scene. And it is kind of like that scene in the air duct is really kind of like a Jenny in Friday the 13th Part 2 thing, right? Where she's trying to psychologically play mm-hmm. Gunter, yes. um, sort of like Jenny with Jason. Um, and yeah, I think she really shines in that scene. I also love the little moment preceding that when she's walking after Richie's body, which is in the cart. And she's just like so distraught. She's like kind of like dragging her feet in a daze and just crying. And I love that moment as well. But I think my favorite line in, in the whole movie comes from her when she's in the bathroom and the, that uh, God is watching you lady comes in. She's like, I hate it when people preach, especially in bathrooms. <laughs> I love that part. And she delivered that line so well. Yeah, I, I think the, the whole teenage cast is just is they're they're pretty good. They're not obviously they're not to the level of uh, Kevin Conway and his theatrics. But, um, yeah, I think that they're all pretty convincing and they're definitely uh, they're definitely better than it could have gone. You get these like stereotypical teens together. It could have been like, oh, could have been. And I hate to say this could have been a night of the demon situation. But instead, there instead, you go I, again. <laughs> I on my crusades. I know Poking I hate it when people preach on the podcast, the but uh, oh. but but uh, yeah, I think they all do a pretty good job. I tend to side with Jackson on that one. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> yes, I win. <laughs> All right. To quote Joel, send your hate mail too. Anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I, I actually like Night of the Demons. I, I, I agree with Joel. I, I, I didn't think much of her performance. I didn't dislike it. I just didn't think anything of it until that scene. And I thought that was a really powerful, you know, scene. And so kudos to her. She didn't have much of a, uh, didn't have a huge career, but she obviously from that scene had something going for her. So I wish she had more, which brings us to Miles Chapin as Richie, who would go on to be, and maybe somebody can explain this to me, the quote unquote duck consultant in Howard the Duck. (laughs) (laughs) Which is trivia. He also implies, I guess he ended up becoming a writer. And I think all he, he alluded to was he decided to become a writer after he was in one particular, I think, bomb of a movie, but he never said the title. I think we could probably assume. <laughs> I think we can assume which movie that was. Yes, man. I, but I, don't, I, I saw that he was in Howard the Duck, but then he's also listed as Duck Consultant. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what is a Duck Consultant for Howard the Duck? I don't understand what that is. But anyway, beyond that. What do you, Joe? What do you think of Miles Chapin as Richie? Well, well, before before we get to that, I did want to yeah. point out maybe it was because of having been in the scene with Buzz for so many times, hearing about the duck on the hot plate. He just yes. brought the <laughs> with it and he could consult on it. Maybe that's what I'm, I have no idea. Um, yeah, he was again fine. I found here's what out of all of them, I would say he was the quote unquote weakest link. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I love that I do air quotes when I'm on an audio podcast. But, uh, <laughs> You know, he was fine. He wasn't that he was bad, but he had these odd reactions. So I thought it was odd that when they were up in the attic area, which we can get into the whole idea of like, why would these presumably, you know, kind of like, you know, things that would break down and be set up, you know, and get hauled by train or whatever. Why would they have attics and basements? But that's, you know, we'll we'll go with 
So they're up in the the top loft base uh, attic or whatever the place, and it, and it's when the um when the dad comes in, and mm-hmm. he's already killed the fortune teller, and he and he lean and he, before he goes to lean over and the light come, the the lighter falls out. With you, good job there, Richie. Mm-hmm. He smirks. Now I get the smirk earlier, right? right? Like oh okay. Right. We- up we're kind of groggy and we we realize oh some shenanigans are going on but like you've just witnessed someone murder someone yes. <laughs> this yeah. is a funny time this isn't smirky time and then the fact that he stole the money it's like his character is i get why he does what he does because obviously helps propel the story forward that because if, if he hadn't stolen the money then yeah. the dad would have reacted the way he did and it wouldn't have led to all that stuff but like for him to do what he did i i will say it i also that's one of the things i like, really liked about buzz's character because his buzz at least is like intelligent enough to go. You did, yeah. you idiot! Like you right. literally signed our death warrant. So yeah, it's like I don't know if I want to blame the actor as much as the writing of his character that he's just kind of a nitwit. Yes, I I agree. Jackson, what about you? Yeah, I thought he was he he was definitely the weakest the weakest link of the chain. Um, but you know, I I there are a few moments I like of him. I like the part where he's like. Yeah, of course, of course she likes him. He's a great guy. And it's like, Richie, when you're stoned, Charles Manson is a great guy, which I guess is lands more with Liz. But I, I like that moment between the two of them. And I also love his delivery of when he suggests they stay at the Funhouse overnight. And he's like, hey, I got an idea. And you're like, oh, no, don't listen to this guy. He's so full of it. But uh, yeah, he yeah, is I, kind of the I one. I went to enough high school parties. You never listen to that guy. Never. Yeah. He he'd be the one like let's get on the roof and do backflips, bro. Yeah, he's he's not the smartest, but um he is kind of the reason everything goes wrong in this entire thing, right? He suggests they stay overnight. Uh, he's the one that I think brings the weed. He's the one that steals the money, and he's the one that drops the lighter. So he is the reason that everything goes wrong in this movie. So I think it's no coincidence that he's the first one out of them to die in a really gruesome way. Um, so, and it's interesting looking at, uh, Miles Chapin or Chapin's, uh, filmography. It's like in 79 hair, which is a well-received movie, I think, mm-hmm. uh, then Howard the duck and yeah. then the people versus Larry Flint. So it's like, it was really trying to sandwich that, uh, his, his <laughs> filmography there. Uh, but, um, yeah, he's, he is, he is basically a, a tertiary, tertiary, uh, antagonist in this film. You kind uh, of wonder he, if Elizabeth Barrage called Milos Foreman, who directed both Amadeus <laughs> and People versus Larry Flint, was like, hey, can you throw my buddy Miles a bone? The last job he had was as a duck consultant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that, I think that's exactly what happened. Um, and she's like, he's not, he's not getting work anywhere else. Howard the Duck has ruined his career. Yeah, he's. Uh, I, I'd be interested to see. Does does he ruin everything for Howard the Duck? Is he that kind of consult? He's a financial consultant. He ruins- I have not seen Howard the Duck since I uh, saw it in theaters back in 1986. I have not. Well, now seen you've got it a reason since. to rewatch. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> this is the next episode of Retro Movie Geek. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No. Daryl will not be there. I guarantee it. If we yes. tell him we're having you guys on and be like, oh, cool, cool. And then I'll be like, but we're covering Howard the Duck. I'll just click. <laughs> I have a, I have, I have a convention to go to. Um, <laughs> I'm driving to New York to go to that same convention on that day. Um, so we have, of course, this was directed by the late, great, Toby Hooper. Joel, I assume you're a fan of Toby Hooper. Oh my God. I can't, I, you know, what's funny. It's like, I met George Romero 
at a con. I missed John Carpenter, so I'm praying. Please, John, keep oh. kick, keep kicking and keep going to cons, at least a couple more, please. Because um, I never got to meet him. I never got to meet Wes Craven, right? So the only one of, of like, I always consider, like, my, like, the big four, you know? I mean, there's obviously a lot of other ones that I love, but that growing up, you know, Ramiro, Hooper, Craven, and Carpenter, I've only gotten to meet one of those guys. And Hooper, I think, I, he did cons, right? Every once in a while, I think he did. I, yeah, I think he did. Yeah, because I've met some people who I've seen some stuff on like Instagram and Facebook where people have like signed copies from like 90s cons with like Toby Hooper and Marilyn Burns and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's funny. He was born the same year as my dad, and he actually my dad passed away in 2015, and he died in 2017. So he was 74. But for some reason in my head, I don't know why I thought this. I always felt like Hooper was younger than the other guys, and I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. You know, I I don't know what it was, and so when he passed, I mean, obviously I was shocked when you know heard about Graven and when I heard about Ramiro. But I guess Ramiro, especially because I always thought of Ramiro as being older. Like I just thought of him as mm-hmm. you know and everything. But with Hooper, I was so just uh, just shocked, and, and yeah, and I, look, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, hands down, is one of the greatest. Or it's it was not in my top ten when I did H, H, my HMP top 10, but he could easily, depending on my mood, be in my top 10. Like, it's such a fantastic film. Um, I, The only movie of his that I remember not liking at the time, and I want to revisit it with mm-hmm. my adult mind, is his um, Invaders from Mars. Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember when I saw it in the theater, I just didn't, like, something about it, just even as a kid, it just didn't work for me. Yeah. But I, I still, I feel like I'd have a different attitude about it now. So, uh, but yeah, but oh, everything. And the only one, one of his earlier films too that I haven't seen, uh, that I, well, I guess it wouldn't be earlier. Actually, I think it's the late eighties, early nineties. But one of his films that I, and I almost hear nobody talk about it for a long time. I didn't realize it was him was spontaneous combustion. Have you ever yeah. seen it? I have seen it. Yeah. Brad Dourif. I didn't care for it. Okay. Um, now he did a movie that same year called a TV movie called I'm Dangerous Tonight. Okay. Which stars, and you can find it on YouTube, uh, and I'm going to butcher her name, Madchen Amik. Oh, oh, from Seapwalkers. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you go. Not Twin Peaks. You go to Sleepwalkers. Um, <laughs> you know, folks, if you've never heard from me before on any podcast, my reaction to uh, Stephen King slash Mick Garris of Sleepwalkers, that if, if that's not your cup of tea, I'm not your guy. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that in theaters, too. But uh, so, Jackson, I take it you, too, are a Toby Hooper fan. Oh, I love Toby Hooper. And I'm I'm totally with Joel. He does seem younger than the other like big four, especially mm-hmm. Romero. And I think that's that's mostly because Texas Chainsaw felt so like youthful. It feels very much like a like a movie by the youth uh, yeah. for that that decade. Um, but uh, yeah, he de- he definitely does seem like he had a lot more stories in him. Unfortunately, it seems like Hollywood didn't treat him the best. Um, no. I don't think he got his due. But uh, and and especially when people you know they're like, oh, your your best movie is Poltergeist, and you didn't even direct that movie. It's like, okay, come uh, on. We'll it's talk like, about that in a minute. And just we'll second, we'll have to because okay. you you and I are are staunch defenders of Hooper's yep. role in Poltergeist. But um, yeah, I definitely he's an amazing director. His movies all do have a certain feel to them. I mean, we talk about like John Carpenter has his own style, um, and of course all the big the big four do. Hooper's one where people are like, oh, he just seems like a working director. Like, I watch his movies, I don't feel that same connection. I definitely do. Hooper has this, like, gritty feel to his movie, this grainy, gritty feel that I don't think any of the other uh, big horror directors have. His movies do feel cohesive. 
Um, and I think it just takes watching a lot of them to realize that because it is more subtle. He is a more subtle filmmaker. He doesn't have the same kind of like um, signatures to him, perhaps. He doesn't have the same kind of like flashy signature filmmaking uh, that like Carpenter would have. But well, I think that um, Joel might agree with this. He can do gritty without mm -hmm. seeming grotesque, a.k.a. Yeah. Rob Zombie. Is that yeah, it yes. doesn't feel zombie-esque, yeah. Doesn't feel, you know what it is? He does it in this very authentic way. It doesn't feel like showboating. It doesn't feel sensationalized. It just feels real and raw. And it's almost like something that I, you can't fake. Like, you know what I mean? I, and no, yeah. no, it's, and I said this many times, I always feel like I have to add the caveat. I actually, every interview I've ever heard with Zombie, like he seems like an awesome dude. Like, yeah. you know it's just sometimes somebody's art doesn't work for you. And I can appreciate that it works for some folks. But everything of his I've always tried to get into, it always feels so overdone, overwrought, sensational. It's, it's, it's like too much. Car with Hooper, it's just like, it's just there, man. It's just raw. It's real. And I, I don't know if either of you have seen it. I haven't seen it in years, but I remember really liking it. Did you ever see his uh, Toolbox Murders, yeah. his Toolbox Murder movie that came out in 2004 with Angela Bettis? And also, ironically, Sherry Moon Zombie. Oh, she's in that? I didn't realize that. Yep, she's in it. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't want to do it. She did it because Rob Zombie said, oh, you have to be in a Toby Hooper film. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and, and I guess, he, he, so was that, and that was a remake, wasn't it considered? Yes, and so it was a 79 or 78 or 79 film, yeah. Yes, and Mortuary as well, right? Because he did Mortuary, like, I think right after that. It came out, like, the yeah, year. I, I think so. I haven't seen that one. I Yeah, yeah but Toby Hooper, I think the thing is, you know, because, Rob Zombie keeps trying to basically remake the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 74, and it's his all-time favorite film. But the thing is, Rob Zombie's a middle-class kid from the suburbs of Boston. Toby Hooper is legitimately from East Texas. So are you saying that it's sort of like Vanilla Ice? Yes. <laughs> trying to seem like he's from— And I, I appreciate Zombie more than you do, because I'm a fan of his music. Jackson and I have seen him in concert. And you're right. You know, It's funny, because when he's interviewed, he comes off as a highly intelligent guy— and and pretty humble and pretty nice. Um, but I do think there are times when I'm just like watching his movies going, this is just a dude, you're you're not pulling this off. You know what I mean? Like Lords of Salem probably is his most authentic movie being set in Salem, Massachusetts, which is like 20 minutes from where he grew up, you know, and it's set in modern times and there's no hillbillies in it and stuff. And it's like the movie's not perfect, but it feels more authentic, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally, totally makes sense. It's funny you bring that up. My uh, my friend Tyson actually recently told me he's a zombie fan, and he's like, look, man, I know you haven't seen Lords of Salem yet. Just get, He goes, because I know how you feel about the other stuff, give that one a shot. In my, you know, his theory, I think, is that I'll have a different reaction. And maybe based on what you just said, maybe that is the issue, and it never occurred to me because I didn't realize what his background was. Right. It, feels like all of his sort of hillbilly white trash sort of stuff has always felt as someone who's grown up in central Florida his whole life and mm -hmm. has been exposed to elements of that. It just always feels like what somebody who has no idea what it's like thinks it would be like. And then they it's do. A, yeah. character it's a caricature at times. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and I never thought about that. Maybe that's what annoys me. And I didn't even realize <laughs> that's why it annoys me, but uh, it might be now it, Lords of Salem is Jackson. You correct me if I'm wrong. Cause you and I both, I think like the film it is a slow burn, right, Jackson? I don't mind slow burn, though. I don't mind that at all. It is very slow. It's, it's kind of like it's kind of like Mandy. It's sort of that kind of movie where it's a little bit trippier. It's a little bit slower. It's shot very like tastefully. I feel like. And I liked Mandy, so I'll give it. I'm gonna give it a. And but Ken I think is in it too. Yeah, so he's good in it. I think the thing with with Rob Zombie versus Hooper is. It feels like you were saying earlier, Joel, I think you hit it right on the head. It is very genuine. It feels like the stuff in 
Hooper's movies existed to be filmed, whereas with Rob Zombie, his stuff was constructed to be filmed. It oh. seems like all the sets he built are really grungy and dirty by design, whereas yes. with Hooper, he just filmed it because it was there. He, yep. he brought an actual carnival in, and they filmed it. Yep. He found an actual old house in Texas, and he filmed it. Yep. That's what it feels like to me, yes. whereas with Zombie, it's like he's on the Universal backlot making the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's so it's a little bit different. Yeah, and that is the difference, too, because now that you say that, like, this is why I love talking these things out with friends because it's like you can start to see things you would never just see if you're just playing it out in your own head. Uh, Hooper talked about, I guess before he made Chainsaw Massacre, and I know he had done the one film before that was kind of like a hippie, you know, sort yeah. of film. But he made, like, I think, much like Ramiro had made all those industrial films, I think he made, like, a bunch of uh, documentaries. He doc did. So that's also an element that, you know, Zombie coming from that music video background, right, he's going to bring that to the table versus somebody like Hooper who's used to doing documentaries. It's sort of like when Lucas does American Graffiti after originally focusing mostly on documentary. And it, you can see it. Like, it's that— yeah. uh, I, you American Graffiti has more of a raw grittiness, a, a authentic raw grittiness than any of the zombie films. Like, because to your point, Jackson, it's the difference between the thing that was actually there and you document it versus right. you try to recreate it and it just feels hollow. Yeah, and I, I like I said, I'm I'm more of a fan than you are, but I but I do get that sense having grown up in Appalachia, having grown up in a place where it's you know pretty. You know, uh, I'll go ahead and just admit what Jackson was accusing me of earlier. I'm in hillbilly paradise. So I, you know, I, I, I get it. But yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, Toby Hooper, you know, grew up in East Texas and then he went to the University of Texas, studied film. I don't think they had a film school at the time, but he studied film, whatever, you know, courses they offered. He did documentary films for the Austin area PBS station. Everything from, you know, kind of local stuff to Vietnam, you know, and all that kind of thing. And he, yeah, he, he shoots the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that way. And, and, you know, he does this film, which most people regard as horrific, but is in fact, like this film, Funhouse, fairly bloodless. I mean, I should say right now, I mean, we'll, we'll, we might cover the kills here in a second, but I mean, gore hounds, if you're going to looking for gore, the Funhouse is not for you. Not There's a, not a huge amount of gore. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Hooper just does, didn't do that kind of thing. And it's interesting because I, I never met him. Uh, I always wanted to. I always wanted to meet Craven and Carpenter, too. I never did. All the people I wanted to meet in Hollywood, I never did. And <laughs> um, But according to what I've read, John Carpenter went to, went to Laker games and goes home and plays video games, and that's all he did when he wasn't making movies. So, But, um, you know, Toby Hooper, from everyone I've heard talk about him, all his friends, and this is the thing, Toby Hooper did not have an enemy in Hollywood. You could not find anybody say a bad word about him. Yeah, um, I was I sometimes listen to Joe Dante's podcast, the movies that made me. It just depends on the guest. And someone asked him one time right after Toby Hooper died, said, you know, I always heard he was a good guy. And immediately Joe Dante, who had known him since the 70s, said, quote, he was a good guy. And he paused. He said, and he deserved better than he got. Hmm. And to your point, and I've heard. Mick Garris, John Landis, Bill Mosley, Carolyn Williams, on and on, talk about how did they just love Toby Hooper, Tom Savini, all of them just, none of them would say a bad word about him, you know, not just after he died, but before. And to your point, real quick, and then we'll move on to talk about Return to the Funhouse, um, Mick Garris did the publicity, the marketing for Poltergeist, and he was on set every single day. You know, he had to be there. If you're doing that kind of thing, PR for a movie, you have to be on set every day because if any magazine or, or anything shows up, you have to be right there. 
and you have to prep the people being interviewed, all that kind of stuff. Mick Garris was on the set of Poltergeist every day. He said, and he said it no, you know, he just said it straight. Toby Hooper directed Poltergeist. <laughs> he said, did he take suggestions from Spielberg? Of course he did. Spielberg was shooting though E.T. at the time. He didn't have time to direct both at the same time. Yes. If you know if you know what directing's like, you're working 16 hours a day. There's no way Spielberg could have directed both at the same time. And I and I was gonna real quick, I just want to point it because I don't want to forget the thought that the end of this movie made me think. It, I don't want to say it's proof, but the last you know, when you think about Poltergeist, and I think it's one of the greatest movies ever. I love that movie. But to me, that last 10 to 15 minutes from the moment where this house is clean to everything that happens with bodies popping up in the pool and the house getting sucked into vortex and you move the house, you didn't move the bodies, all of that. That is the, that's what makes it one of the greatest horror movies of all time. There's other, that's great. Obviously face peeling off and all that stuff. But that, that last thing and the, and the end of this movie, the end of the fun house, there's, there's, I don't want to say echoes necessarily, but just the lighting and the flashing of the light and the music and the chaos of it. It's just the two characters in at the end of the funhouse, but it rem, there was something about it that kind of reminded me of that ending. So the one yeah. argument I've ever heard is like Spielberg kind of handled the more family drama stuff and that Toby did the horror parts. Right. Even if you want to argue that it was co-directed, I would buy that. Or I buy that Hooper did it all and that Spielberg just had a heavy hand and was in, as a producer. But that I, I think to take credit away from him for that is, I don't know. Uh, 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 it's, well, people compare it to used cars all the time because, you know, Spielberg produced used cars and Robert Zemeckis was directing it. And it was I think it was either Kurt Russell or Jack Warner said at one point, you know, look, I could take direction from him, Bob Zemeckis, or he pointed to Spielberg. Or I can take it from you, but not both. And but at that time, when used cars was in production. Spielberg wasn't directing anything. Yeah. He was on pre-production on Raiders, but he wasn't pre he wasn't directing. He was directing E.T. at the time. Was he on set at Poltergeist several days? Yes, he was. Mick Garris said, did he make suggestions to Toby Hooper? Yes, he did. And as Mick Garris said, if the guy who directed Jaws and Close Encounters gave you a suggestion, <laughs> you listen. Do you think you might listen? If you're smart, and Toby Hooper was a smart man. So there you yes. go. Yes. Yes. So, but no, he directed that. But anyway, yeah, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I think he Hooper's one of those special guys, light carpenter that can do a lot with a little. Yes, agreed. and I, I just think he he was absolutely brilliant. Gone too soon. Um, he also directed right after this Billy Idol's video, Dancing with Myself, and he used some of the props from the Funhouse for the video. So I, I need to go back and <laughs> and and rewatch that. Which, by the way, my favorite thing was when I moved to L.A. The, the the thing that guys always said to each other is that any guy came and say, yeah, I'm dating, you know, somebody new now. I'm dating such and such. And the, the joke was, has she slept with Billy Idol? <laughs> because <laughs> Billy Idol got around so much and apparently was so well liked by the ladies. I mean, made James Bond look like a member of Revenge of the Nerds cast. Billy Idol just went through every other woman in Hollywood. And the joke was, I need to find a wife that hasn't slept with Billy Idol. That was the joke in Hollywood. Um, but Toby Hooper directed Dancing with Myself right after this. And if you watch Dancing with Myself video, apparently you can see props from the Funhouse. But that being so, said, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so it turns out that Billy Idol was not just dancing with himself. If you no, know. he was not. <laughs> in fact, he's admitted he had a separate home in the Hollywood Hills just for his girlfriends. Wow. Yeah. He had two homes, one for his steady girlfriend and his son, a second house for his other girlfriends. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, um, 
the technical aspects about this, um, we you mentioned that the cinematography here, oh. I think, is absolutely excellent. Joel, love, love it, love it, love it. And the fact that so Andrew Laszlo was the DP, yeah. and going through his IMDb, man, I just off the just oh, off the top, right? Because he did Warriors before this. That was, I think, the reason why Hooper wanted him, and he did Southern Comfort, Comfort a totally underrated Walter Hill film. I love that movie. First Blood, I don't care what you say, that movie is a great movie. That is a fantastic, you know, make all the Rambo jokes you want, folks. First Blood is a classic. And also a movie I did not see till much later. In fact, I didn't see it till I was uh, doing the Forgotten Flicks days, but it was uh, Streets of Fire. It was a movie yes. I, I I remember my video productions teacher in high school, uh, Mr. Morgan, inspired me a lot, and he loved the movie. And I remember he told me, oh, you got to see this movie, you got to see this movie. And I just, blah, like, what do you know? You're an adult. Ah. And so I was an idiot kid. Yeah, don't be like me, kids. Um, and so I finally see it, and I'm like, holy crap, this movie's amazing. So, yeah, he did so many great movies. And uh, total coincidence, but it is a nice little connection. He apparently was a DP on Poltergeist 2. Yeah, which which is not a movie I love, but it looks good. It looks and- good. But he was also DP on Inner Space, which yeah. is a movie that inexplicably bombed. I yeah. love Inner Space. It's a um, yeah, but the crane shots in here are just I, I think they're absolutely incredible. So Jackson, you're the aspiring filmmaker. What did you think of the cinematography? I thought it was really good. And it does, it definitely does feel like Hooper gritty 70s, but also there's some really like, especially when you get into the fun house, like the, the colors and everything. But yeah, you're talking about the crane shots. And I was listening to Toby Hooper talk about this in an interview. And he sent his, his DP up in there in, in the crane, and he's just riding in a little basket. And he's going all the way up, hundreds of feet up, up this Ferris wheel, gets back down. The DP says, I got to use this in every movie I work on. And, and Hooper, was, Hooper was freaking out. He didn't want to go up there. But, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's so much fun. That just tells you that he's willing to do whatever to get the shot. But, um, yeah, I think this movie looks really good. It definitely feels very much like it's got that wide an- anamorphic lens or some panaglide stuff in there. It feels like a Carpenter movie or like, a, like a, it, it's just got that vibe to it. But it definitely looks gorgeous, especially when you get into the first time we see the funhouse. We're not even ready for it, I don't feel like, because we just zoom right in, and then it's just all in our face. It's like we're actually on the ride. We go from, you know, suddenly stereo sound to, like, full surround sound, basically. It feels yes. like it really opens up, um, and it really does feel like we're on a on a funhouse ride. Um, and just the way that shot, and you know getting the lighting right inside that funhouse with the camera with the guy riding actually in the cart was probably really, really hard to get those shots to look good. Um, so, uh, yeah, definitely definitely one of the standout features of this of this movie. And it makes it feel a little bit classier than I think it could have felt. Oh, absolutely. And but they, also the lighting. I mean, like, you know, you, you said about the sound, which w- w- we can touch on if you want. But, yeah, that the, it, um, Toby Hooper said that was the editor's idea, right, in the interview you sent me? Yeah, yeah. The editor suggested that it should just be regular stereo because they were going to do the whole thing in, in surround sound because that was a new you know feature, that was a selling point. But the idea to start the surround sound when you enter the funhouse, like real like sensory overload just hits you. And I can imagine yeah. being in a theater in 81, that would have been awesome. Uh, like that, that I think that would have been like something that felt like groundbreaking. Um, but yeah, I think that is a really good, a really good idea. I didn't get the full effect of it watching it on my laptop, but uh, maybe right, if I would have right. worn headphones, I don't know. Yeah, but I like, you know, the scene we've been talking about a lot, you know, where, you know, Gunter has got, you know, has got was her name, Liz cornered, you know, and you got the fan behind her and all that kind of stuff. And she's trying to lure him in. 
I mean, the lighting in that is real, especially on the Shout Factory Blu-ray I have. The lighting is fantastic. I mean, it's just it just looks gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Natural lighting, and how do they fit the camera in that in that air shaft? That's my question. How they how they get that to work out? Oh, it's I'm pretty a, sure that's a set piece. But anyway, that's probably. that's all right. You know, that's like, you know, it's uh, come on. I mean, you know, like John McClane's ever going to fit in an air duct? I mean, it, it, <laughs> you know, it, but it works. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hey, look, I'm a huge Die Hard fan. All right. I mean, and I even like Die Hard too, but I've got a buddy in it. So uh, uh, one of my one of my buddies from LA played one of the terrorists. Oh. Uh, stu- yeah, Stupid Don is what we called him. Um, he used to be Sylvester Stallone's body double, and uh, he finally got in front of the camera with without having to use to be Sylvester Stallone in Die Hard Two. And uh, yeah, we called him Stupid Don, even to his face. He accepted it. Um, that's all right. He was a millionaire. He didn't care. Um, so, but the editing as well, I think we've touched upon, you know, there, there's some filler in here, obviously, you know, like the, the, the kid walking around, I thought was kind of a waste, you know, there's that kind of thing. Um, but Jackson, cause you're the musician here, Joel, I don't know if you play any instruments or not, but what about the score, Jackson? I enjoyed it. I thought it, it served the movie well. It's not something that I thought was super iconic. In fact, there are a couple like stings like when, when somebody would attack another person where it felt like, oh, I've, I've heard that in a million other movies. But, uh, you know, it, it, it does, it fits it really well. Even the orchestrated score feels very circus-like. It is very carnival-esque. Um, so in that way, it is, it is really tonally solid. Um, and uh, I also like when it knows not to use music. I like, like so there are some dramatic scenes where it's just quiet. And I like that as well. And as far as sound design, before we move on from that, we were talking about the fan scene with Liz. But there's also the scene where Amy is trying to scream for her parents, and her voice is just like getting like drowned out and chopped up by the fan. And I love the way that sounded. That was that was really really intense. I liked that. Um, uh, so yeah, just I, I like the sound and lighting department. They were on. They were on key. This this entire uh, production, they were really on it. Um, and uh, yeah, th- honestly, I think this is just as good technically, visually as Poltergeist. Maybe not with the special effects, but I don't know. It looks very. It still looks really good today. Yeah, I agree. Joe, what about you? Yeah, totally. And actually, it's, I love that you brought up the fan and her talking through it. That reminded me of the scene in Crawl. Oh, where, oh right. Yeah, right. Not to give it away, but where you know we got a character that's trapped in an environment, but they used rain, right, to sort of cascade right. down. And they they can't be hurt. So there's something about that to being that close. And I'm sure it's a you know it's a a trope that's been used in other things, but just that idea of you're that close to someone helping you. And and then when you combine it with the fact that they had set up so nicely that her family seems so disinterested in general, right? And there's this detachment uh, that the, her parents seem to have, but then that she can't even get that help and they're so close to her. Yeah, but the, I agree with everything you guys said. I mean, the the sound, the the score, and of course, again, the lighting and the cinematography. I, I have always loved just that anamorphic look. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure to some degree it still gets used, but I've got to believe that because, and I know like you still got guys like Nolan and Tarantino, some other people that still shoot on film and, and use, you know, old cameras and whatnot. But I don't know. I, I do feel like a lot of modern films, there is an aesthetic difference between yes. the look of this and the look of those. And, and, and I, maybe it's just being an, an old fart. I don't know, <laughs> but I much prefer just the aesthetic of a, of a movie like this or the original Halloween, where you just get that, you know, two, three, five to one ratio. It just mm-hmm. something about that, the way they use depth of field and everything else. It just, I, it creates, it makes the movie 
uh, bigger than life and, and really pulls you in to whatever story it is they're trying to tell. Well, based upon Tarantino's box office, I don't think you're an old fart because he seems to be doing fairly well uh, for himself shooting on film. So, so we'll we'll open this up. But one thing I wanted to mention real quick: Gene Siskel gave this movie a positive review. What? Gene Siskel gave this movie a positive review. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gene, I hate all horror movies. Siskel. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> from the 80s, especially. Or I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Yeah, that's shocking. Or yeah. I was going to say, how about Gene? I hate violence against women, Siskel. Like, what's yeah. that? All? What, why did he changed his mind on this one, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, consistency was never Siskel's fine point. Neither one of them, Siskel <laughs> or Ebert, but it's definitely Siskel. Who, I mean, Gene Siskel hated Scream, but really liked Scream 2. Yeah, now, I really like Scream 2 as well, but if you're going to tell yeah. me it's as good as Scream, you're out of your mind. That's, that's yeah, that is a weirdly, really weird one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so what else do we want to talk about? Joel, what else do you want to talk about with the Funhouse? Well, I actually, so I, I know, uh, Jackson, I don't want to, you know, rain on your parade because I know you wanted to talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff. But uh, I, I presume in your notes, and if you don't have it, let me know and, and I'll go down this road. But the issue of a certain ride, I believe it was called Cobra. That, oh, you know what I'm talking yeah. about? I do, but I think you could tell it better. Go ahead. Yeah, we'll see about that. So the way it was explained, now I love that Hooper, it sounded like in the commentary that he was downplaying it. Like, I think they were left on there for like 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> There's the scene where they're smoking the weed behind the tent, and it's all one shot, right? It starts on them. They kind of go away from the tent, and the camera pulls over, and, and you can see, I don't know, what would you call it? It's like a tilt-a-whirl? Is that what they used to call it? You know, the ones where yeah. you baskets and now i remember going to the uh, i mentioned i alluded to this earlier so we had one in um winter haven which is where i went to high school and my dad lived there and so on the weekends when i'd go visit him there's this thing called the orange festival and it was in january around january around my birthday and he would take us there and i remember being a kid it was very much like this carnival like a little a little bit bigger maybe but pretty much the same as far as the type of rides you had the fun house spook house type thing mm -hmm. you definitely had that cobra tilt-a-whirl type of thing where you know you're sitting in it and it spins around and i, I never forget being a kid and seeing some dude just blow chunks everywhere <laughs> it's right oh, yeah. and just bleh, and i was like oh god because you think it's going to come back at you they also had something called the gravitron i don't know if you it's they actually showed it i think it was in the last uh season of stranger things it looks like a ufo and mm -hmm. you sit in it and you would like lay back on this like on a board and when it would spin it was you know centrifugal force the board would like lift up and the thing is i have horrible motion sickness but i would never throw up so i would just feel like nauseated for four hours afterwards mm -hmm. those kinds of rides right so i remember like how horrible these things make you feel so if you've ever been on them you know well apparently so they're doing this shot it's all one take they apparently did five takes of this one take, okay? And it's not a short shot. This isn't like a, oh, 10 seconds. And and when you think about this is film and a big camera with anamorphic lenses, and like all the setup and how and it's a tracking shot and, and just everything involved. I can't even imagine what one take, how long oh that Oh, my gosh. Well, apparently, the assistant director, whoever was in charge, uh, or the, the P, whatever, PA, or whoever's in charge of manning the various rides and making sure that they stopped them in between takes, didn't do so. Right. And so, therefore, <laughs> <laughs> well, Hooper said, he described it in the commentary was, you know, I started to feel like it was starting to rain. 
It's like, oh, oh crap, it's going to rain. Oh. <laughs> and, they, and he started to hear screams, but it wasn't like the fun carnival screams. It was blood-curdling, I'm going to die kind of screams. And they finally realized that that ride right next to where they were shooting had been going nonstop. Now, he claimed it was like, I don't know, 15 or so minutes. Well, one of the things I read said maybe as long as 30 plus. Yep. And you're That's only- what I read. Yeah, you're only supposed to be on it for like a couple minutes and a pop. And so they had to like call an ambulance. Luckily, at least they claim nobody was like permanently injured. I can't imagine what that would have done to your equilibrium. Oh, my. That's that's well, hell. Well, Hooper was definitely downplaying it. The interview I saw of him, he said eight takes 30 minutes, not five takes 15. So in the commentary track, he was doing a little bit of damage control, it seems. Uh, but yeah, I don't know why they didn't think, because I'm sure there's a lot of setup between the yeah. different takes, why they didn't think to turn it off between the takes and maybe cycle some new extras on. Hey, want to ride a ride? You yeah. know, but instead it's just the same people for 30 plus minutes. Yeah, that's that would be bad. Yeah. You thought you thought our child labor laws were ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, the the interview that Jackson sent me this morning, I think his, you know, his ending comment was no one died. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> After you shot the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the and the hellscape that that was well, that's true. I got to imagine by comparison, you're like, eh, whatever, they're fine. It's it's well, no big deal. So what else you got, Joel? Anything else for me? Yeah, uh, really, the only other thing that, that I had in my notes as far as, like, behind the scenes that I thought was worth mentioning is that he almost uh, potentially died. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess it was, like, a gear or something, like a cog got knocked. I don't, was, I, I don't remember the exact details, so if you fill in those gaps. But basically, it was going at his head, and apparently when an extra had the presence of mind to be like Superman and <laughs> fly yeah. in front of him and hit it with their arm, and so it broke that person's arm uh, and thus maybe you know keeping hooper around long enough to make poltergeist and all the subsequent movies he made exactly exactly yeah i read that too so i one thing though in the imdb trivia is not true so it says kevin conway attributed the weirdness and the accents on set he said well that's because toby hooper's coke habit and he was joking he said that's because he drinks a 12 pack of coke a day yes that is not true toby hooper only drank dr pepper Ah, oh, <laughs> this just did hot take. That's right, it's a hot take. <laughs> and, and according to Tom Savini, Joe Bob Briggs he said, Joe Bob Briggs said, if you interviewed Toby Hooper during the day, it was he'd have a cigar in one hand and a Dr Pepper in the other. If you interviewed him in the evening, he had a Dr Pepper in one hand and a joint in the other. Um, it was he didn't drink. He did smoke weed, but he always had a Dr. Pepper in his hand. And Carolyn Williams and Bill Mosley said the same thing. It was on the what the set. They asked him what the set was like. It was like the smell of smoke and Dr. Pepper yeah. constantly. Yeah, so, that explain why he seems so chill, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, Jackson, what do you got, buddy? First, I want to say, Kevin Conway, how dare you contribute to the false information in this current political climate? I know you have you have completely you that you should be ashamed. Well, Fake news let me tell Hooper. you something. As somebody who lived in Texas for three years, because I went to seminary in Texas, Texans take that crap seriously. Because <laughs> Dr. Yeah, Pepper is made and bottled in Texas, and it is their drink. Yep. So a, a few other things I had to say. More more behind the scenes stuff. Uh, first of all, Hooper turned down working on E.T. to work on this. He was actually going to be drafted by Steven Spielberg to help on E.T. I don't know if he was picking up directing work or what was going on with that. Um, I'm glad he did not do E.T. because now we have we have two good movies rather than one with you know quality we can only speculate on. But it definitely would have been interesting, and that would have definitely contributed more to the whole 
Steven Spielberg directed Poltergeist saying if they had worked on E.T. together. Um, so, Jackson, I was going to ask you, because I, I saw that on the trivia as well, and I thought, and I actually re- I like did, I mean, when I say research, I Googled, <laughs> so I didn't do that, mm-hmm. but, but I just, that was the only place I've ever seen that I'd never, prior to reading that in the trivia, had never even heard that he had offered him E.T., because I always thought E.T. was like this passion project of Spielberg, and he was, like, that was his baby, so I'm thinking, Spielberg offered that to anybody? Like, that just didn't, yeah. True. I, the story that I heard was that he actually had, because when he was pushing E.T., Raiders had not yet become the hit, you know, because this was 81. He, he was in post-production on Raiders when he was pushing E.T. And that the studio was completely sold on Poltergeist, but they were not sold on E.T. And so he kind of had to commit to directing E.T. Okay. And, but he really wanted to direct Poltergeist, which is also what fed into that rumor that, no, he really directed it. It was just the DGA rule saying you can't direct two movies at once. Gotcha. Okay. Nah, okay. Yeah, I, I just had never heard that because I always imagined that E.T. But, but again, also Poltergeist, I know that he was very passionate about that yep. one. As well, so, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, well, I got, well I'd, I'd say probably two more behind-the-scenes things. First of all, you mentioned the thing with the onset accident. There's also another thing. Hooper got bit by a poisonous spider, I think a brown recluse. Brown recluse, um, yeah. Which is, that's pretty heavy-duty. I mean, I mean, he's from Texas. I'm sure he's got lots of poisonous animals around him all the time. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's nothing to laugh at. And another thing, um, I was thinking more about this, and we've been harping on the editing and the fact that there's so much of that kid walking around. And I was like... Yeah, but how else would Hooper show what was happening outside the funhouse? I feel like the kid was really honestly just like to show us what was going on outside the funhouse while our main characters were inside. Because it'd be kind of weird if he just started following like the bag lady or something just randomly. Yeah, I'm just not sure we needed to know what was going on outside the funhouse. I just didn't find it that interesting. It could be, Joel, you may be right. It may just be, you know, kind of a way to kind of attention relief. I certainly, you know would prefer the kid walking around as tension relief than to say the goofy cops in Last House on the Left. You oh, know. boy. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But go ahead, Jackson. I'm sorry. But it was just like, I, I, there were a few parts I enjoyed. I like the part where he's, he climbs over the fence, he's in the restricted area, and the guys are all playing poker, all the carnies are playing poker and telling stories. I did enjoy that. The van door opens up, and there's the short man kissing the regular-sized lady, and they're yeah. like looking around like, oh. I do like those little moments, and that just shows you that Hooper does have a sense of humor. Um, I think often Spielberg was thought of as like the heart and soul of all, of, of Poltergeist or whatever, but he did have a, a humorous side to him. I think that dark humor from Hooper really shined through with the whole, they relocated the gravestones, but not the bodies. That, <laughs> that whole thing, that, that's a very darkly comedic thing. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I The more I'm thinking about it, and this always happens, whenever we cover a movie, I'm like kind of a little bit more down on it. And then after we've talked about it for an hour, my rating goes up. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even have a problem with that kid as much anymore, even though, come on, you, you, you're, you think your sister's playing a prank on you, so you don't even mention it to your parents that the kid's right over there. I'm not really sure what that'll, and we needed the, the internal monologue. We need him rehearing her saying, I'm going to get you one of these days. It's like, okay, well, that, that is very much a product of its time, but still, you know, I, I, I think Hooper deserves more credit. I think you're being kind. I think it was padding, but it's not, I mean, it's not terrible. I just thought it mm-hmm. was just not necessary, but that's right. I think you could have done other things, but that's okay. That's all right. But go ahead. What else you got? 
Uh, other than the fact that um, the. I, I I think that I was thinking in the beginning, it's like when they're walking around the carnival and it's like all the dirt and the brown and the grays. I was like, this looks pretty unsaturated. And then we get into the the uh, fun house itself and it's real saturated. I wonder if that was an intentional choice. I think now I think I'm really digging deep to try to give Hooper more credit. I don't know if that was an, an intentional thing where he's like, oh, the beginning is going to be it's going to be like Wizard of Oz, where it's kind of like more brown and gray and unsaturated. Then once you get into the fun house, that's Oz. Um, I don't know. Maybe that was just something I wrote down, an observation I had. Well, let's, if only we had a resident of Florida here to, to speak to this, um, the topography of Florida. There Are there spots like that where it's just like brown and then suddenly green and then brown? I mean, is that is that a Florida thing? Joel, I've never paid attention when I've been there. So the long answer, yes. Okay. It's it's very the the joke actually I've I've actually many times we've I've heard this joke and have made this joke that Florida our two seasons are green and then like brown and mm. dead and then green <laughs> and then brown and dead only last a very short period of time. Yeah, it it you could tell it was shot in Florida. Like that movie and again new kids or they're, they're those ones from that era especially where when I watch them I think yeah that's exactly when I was growing up like that's what it looked like so yeah i it's and i agree with you jackson i actually think it was on purpose because Mm -hmm. there was uh, in the commentary some talk of like maybe the influence of say ec comics and even like bob and stuff because when they're in the fun house and they're walking around and the the way that you get these kind of really just uh the colors and the and it it does have almost like kind of creep show comic book vibe to it yeah it's not as heavy as like in a creep show, but it's it's definitely got that to it. And because of the buildup, I would I would assume it was on purpose. Yeah, yeah I'd be and, willing to go with that. Go ahead, Jack. I, I I think that he deserves and this is another thing I just thought of. Um, kind of giving, I think Hooper was also partially inspired by the reaction to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was just thinking, you know, how does Gunter go out? He's snagged on a hook, like, like a meat hook sort of thing, Mm -hmm. just like, which is one of the most infamous, like, like Mandela effect things, I guess, which is people remember that meat hook scene in Texas Chainsaw being super gratuitous or whatever. And that kind of became a, a, a thing where it's like, oh, it's not, it's not really, but Gunter goes out, he's snagged on a meat hook and then kind of uh, twisted between two cogs. And I'm wondering if uh, Hooper's experience with the cog flying out of head and then also the experience with people decrying Texas Chainsaw with its, its bloody meat hook scenes. I wonder if he's like, let's just combine them here. Yeah, maybe. Well, and he worked closely with Rick Baker on a couple of things. Like one of the things that um, I-, I was listening to somebody talk about it, like just a couple of things he and Baker had, had talked about. So for example, you've got Gunter's twin brother, Tad, Mm -hmm. the the who is dead in the jar you know so um and it's got they both have like a cleft um forehead Mm -hmm. and then what do you have right next to it you have the cow with the cleft palate oh no are you saying that there was some (laughs) the mom Uh... yeah i'm not i I i'm just saying that toby hooper you know threw some stuff in there and he and rick baker had a lot of fun doing this that's all i'm going to say that's all i'm going to think of it gunter's hands do look a little hoof like i don't know (laughs) oh i don't want to they're very and actually i want to go back really early to what you said earlier jackson you made a comment about rob botine he was involved in the sense that at least from what i gathered he was originally going to be gunter i think that's who hooper wanted oh okay Apparently very tall. I don't remember how tall he is, but he's apparently pretty tall. And so then he, I guess, Hooper saw this mime uh, performing. It's like, oh, no, this guy will will be the one. So, yeah. So anything else before we went, before we uh, rate this sucker and tell people what we what they should do? Yeah, no, offer advice here. So, 
All right. So, Joel, I know you hate to give numbers this stuff, but if you had to on a scale of one to ten, what would you give this? Yeah, you're right. I do. <laughs> sort of a bit of well, if you want to just give a recommendation, buy, rent, go for it. I should add the caveat because I always feel like it's arbitrary because it's, it's more purely like driven by feeling. It's not like I had some quantitative way of like, well, I give uh, two points for this area and uh, one point for that. I don't <laughs> It's pure heart. So based on heart, I feel like I don't even know what I would have rated this the first time I saw it, probably in the 6.5 to 7 range. I'm going to tell you, after watching it this time, watching the commentary, having this conversation with you guys, for me, The Fun House, 1981 is an 8.5, son. Wow. Yeah. So you're saying it's a buy? It is a total buy. Gotcha. Yes. Gotcha. Jackson, what about you? Uh, for me, I'm a little, I would, I was lower first time watching. I was like a six. I, now I'd say I'm between a seven and a 7.5. I did really enjoy it. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it's my favorite, uh, Hooper. It's just not, it's, it's not as scariest. It's not as most heartfelt. It's not as most iconic, but it's, it, it is a solid movie. I think it, it is a solid movie all over. There's no like big downfall to it. Um, so between seven and 7.5, um, I would say, I would say buy it, rent it on Amazon, you know, whatever. If you haven't seen it before and you're a big fan of, of Hooper, or if you even just, you know, you like 80s horror movies, I would, I'd recommend it. It is, it does have things to admire about it and it does defy your expectations a little bit. Absolutely. So when I first, um, reviewed this on Letterboxd a few years ago, several years ago, when I was going through the films of 1981, which would probably have been the second time I watched it, I gave it a 7.5. After rewatching it, I'm kicking it up to an eight. Um, and I'll call it a buy. I own it. And um, I didn't get it to all of the special features, but I, I will try to as soon as I can because I really enjoyed it this time around. I think it's really solid. So if you like slashers, but you, you know, you don't want it, you don't want that kind of low-level kind of slasher that almost today would be, or in the 90s would be direct to video kind of fair. Uh, the fun house is for you. So folks. My trusty sidekick just graduated from high school, and on June 12th, eight days from when we're recording this, he will turn 18. So happy birthday, Jackson. Thank um, you. And this fall, he heads to film school, and you can help with that by going to patreon.com and contributing to Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. All proceeds go to Jackson and his future horror filmmaking endeavors. And you can join for as little as $2.50 a month. You can suggest films, be on the podcast, vote in our polls, or our annual horror Oscars. So in the meantime, check out fatherandsonwatchhorror.com, and we have a Twitter account and a closed Facebook group. So, Joel, where can the good listeners find you? Uh, before I say that, I second that point. You should go there, and you should support this show. I know I do. Come on, yes, folks. Yes, you do. Thank I you. I do it. If I could do it, come on. You could do it, too. Please do. Uh, that said, you, of course, can find me, Retro Movie Geek. Uh, with Daryl and Peter, as always. Uh, Terror on the Tube with Peter and Allison, of course. I also did a little podcast called Werewolf, the TV yes. series podcast with Hammond. So we covered that that classic uh, 80s werewolf. Uh, speaking of Rick Baker, at least kind of Rick Baker. Oh, uh, yeah. The werewolf. So, uh, yeah, check all that out. And, of course, Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Yeah, and I just started listening to the latest episode this morning because my puppy got me up at 4.30 in the morning. So, <laughs> uh, so while he was fertilizing and watering the lawn, I was starting to listen to HNP. So, Jackson, where can they find you, buddy? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. You can find my YouTube and Letterboxd links from there. Um, yeah, and uh, I also started listening to HNP today. And uh, I did not, unfortunately, have the the pleasure of pairing that with a nice Bogart fertilization. <laughs> but um, 
Uh, but, my puppy uh, yeah. Bogart, ladies and gentlemen. Well, my wife's puppy yeah. Bogart. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but, so uh, go ahead, buddy. Yeah. Check out check out HMP uh, and uh, Retro Movie Geek, which we we have awarded several several awards to Joel in his various podcasts. I'm I'm sure that was the highest honor you've ever felt, Joel. Right? I mean, isn't that? It it, it, it was honest, honestly, <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, yes, yeah. The, uh, the the workplace. What what did you guys call it? It was the uh, oh. most hostile work environment. But that was now. To, I don't know if this is giving credit where credit is due or throwing someone under the bus, but Jackson picked the category. So <laughs> I did. I did. Fantastic. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm on Twitter and letterbox as uh, pastor Matt R. So thanks for listening. Jackson say goodbye to the good people. Uh, goodbye. And remember they wiggle when they dance, they wiggle when they dance. Uh, the, the sound, the sound waves, that is. They wiggle and they dance as you listen to father and son watch horror movies. Oh, oh. that was so great. <laughs> Folks, <laughs> until next time, remember the family that watches horror together slays together. See ya. Once again, I want to thank the great people over on Patreon. Dave Becker, Greg Bench, Dan George, Ian Urza, Kevin Corby, Ashley Pinker, Blake Pops, Joel Robertson, Brian Scott, Amy Swan, and Trey Whetstone. Thank you all so much for the continued support. Have a great week. Back to Monster Vision host Joe Bob Briggs and the Fun House on TNT. The great thing about these low-budget Toby Hooper films is that they're all grainy and kind of jumpy. So if you were watching this at a drive-in in the early 80s, you might start thinking, you know what, this could have actually been made by a maniac. All horror films are better if they're grainy and choppy. Did you notice how it said, introducing Elizabeth Barrage? She plays Amy, our heroine, who's sneaking out with her low-life gas station attendant boyfriend, Buzz. But I wonder how Elizabeth Barrage feels about that. For the rest of her life, people will say to her, Hey, I didn't know you were in the fun house. Cool. <laughs>